why do we preach sermons on Sunday morning? Seems a little uh, funny, doesn't it, to preach a sermon about preaching? So I'm preaching about preaching this morning. I'm giving a sermon about giving sermons. Uh, why do we why do we include not only the reading of Scripture? Every week we have someone to come up as a reader and they read the scripture and then we thank God for the reading, which, by the way, uh, Justin is at work already uh, inviting a number of you to consider, man or woman, signing up to read the scripture on Sunday morning. We would like to have more people involved in the public reading of Scripture in the worship service. But we follow that with a sermon. We expound, we interpret, we emphasize as preachers. We preach what has just been read. Or we try to offer support and additional foundational texts that perhaps were not read to support the sermon. But why do we do that? I mean, we're in a very visual age. I spoke last week and talked about how a challenge to our life of prayer is, is something called captology, where our attention is captured by technology so that on average, every four and a half minutes, we must check our smartphone or device. We've got to check and be in tune with whatever the, the texts are, the emails, the Facebook, social media, or other things, whatever has gone viral out there. So it's very challenging to sit 30, 35, 40, often in this church, 45 minutes, so it's never my design to go longer than 35. But it's challenging. It's increasingly challenging for audiences. Why not, why not, instead of a sermon, why not a TED Talk? 18 minutes and I'm done. Or, better yet, why not a Christian film? Kind of a documentary or bringing in, maybe videocast someone else from a, another location. Or, I remember for many, many years, drama. Drama was the best way to communicate about God and His being the Savior and His plan of redemption and man being a sinner in need of redeeming. We could, do, we could do more songs, just all songs. You'll notice this morning that Justin and the team, they're, they're gradually pushing me off stage. I mean, I've just got this little last portion over here. That's a joke. Why not? Well, first and foremost, God has ordained preaching. He says that the wisdom of the world, in the text that we've just read, the wisdom of the world is suspect. He says here that in verse 18, 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? In other words, out of the two, preaching offers to us this morning the power of God. But the wisdom of the world says, you know, preaching is, just seems so foolish. It just, if we're not going to eliminate it or replace it, at least minimize it. Be like one of those churches where it's more every week, it's, a, it's briefer and briefer. Maybe it's a homily that has now become a devotional. Or maybe it's a church where they, they do not offer any lesson or preaching, they just read the scriptures. Well, Paul says there, that we, that God has ordained it, and though others may look at it as folly, it has resident in it the very power of God upon our hearts and our souls. And I want to ask you as we get into this and you look at your outline, we're not going to be able to expand, you know, all of the things that, that a sermon does this morning. But I want you to consider this. If you miss everything else that I say, are you letting the act of listening to a sermon be an act of your worship? Let me repeat that. Are you listening to sermons as an act of worship? And yes, there is something to physically getting up and leaving your home and not simply dialing in an evangelist or a preacher on TV. There's something about being in community with one another that the power of God historically comes down through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of His Word. It sounds crazy. It sounds foolish. And what we see is we see the power of God demonstrating in the transformation, which is one thing that we preach, the gospel that we hear again emphasized that we preach, and then finally, it's through sermons and the preaching of God's Word that He has ordained that his power is resident in, that makes it an act of worship that the cross of Christ is preached. So let's look at the outline that you have in front of us. And you'll see, first of all, that, that we preach transformation. Particularly if you are of a Reformed background, then you understand that we who are who see the scriptures from our Reformed background and perspective and training, we see it covenantally. We see it as one large, complete, true story of redemption. It's all one big rescue mission. It's a story of creation. It's a story of intimacy with God. A fall, it's broken. And then God sets about to redeem 
and to receive again through his own grace, his gracious, sovereign design to redeem us, to rescue us. Now being rescued, he restores us as the sons and daughters now fit for his kingdom forever with him. And we see that from Genesis to to Revelation. It's a whole story of transformation. Now, that alone can be read in the scriptures, but we need preachers to give sermons in order to help us to understand it. The Puritan Thomas Cartwright said this, and it's important that you know that he's a Puritan. I'll make a comment in just a second. When the fire is stirred up and discovered, it gives the more heat than when it is not. So the word of God by preaching and interpreting make to a greater flame in the hearts of the hearers than when it is read. The Puritans in the 16th and 17th century, that's around 1560 to 1660. Men like Thomas Manton, John Flavel, John Owen, and many more. The Puritans were in the Anglican Church or the Church of England. Elizabeth had come to the throne. Mary, her predecessor, was gone. She was Catholic. Elizabeth comes to the throne in what's known as the Elizabethan age. And these Puritans, who are Anglican ministers and theologians, say, we want to further purify the Church of England because we left the abuses in the Catholic Church But the Church of England yet needs to be purified. And these were wonderful men. But the the battle that they had was that the Church of England had a de-emphasis on preaching. And the Puritans had an emphasis on preaching. Why? Because of transformation. They did not believe that transformation would occur in a vacuum of simply the scriptures being read and heard and read without the medium of a preacher. And so they said, we will suffer no bare reading of scripture and we will never tolerate bare preaching. In other words, bare reading was in a worship service, we would be concluding right now, the scriptures would have been read, and we believe that there is power in God's word. But it takes a man to then come, as Thomas Cartwright said, stir the fire for transformation to begin to take place. It gives off more heat. Why? My task in the Valley of Vision, a minister's preaching. Listen to my task this morning and pray for me. We saw in Colossians 4 recently where Paul said to the congregation, pray for my words, pray for my preaching. 
pray that I'll deliver it as I ought. Give me freedom. This is Valley of Vision prayers and ministers preaching. Give me freedom to open the sorrows of thy people and to set before them comforting considerations. Attend with power the truth preached. These are Puritans. And awaken the attention of my slothful audience. I, I, I know it's not flattering to be called slothful, but we are slothful many times in our listening. Are you even now trying to capture the sermon as an act of worship? Is your listening becoming an act of worship? May thy people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings. Christ has come, and he's come to die, and he died to win us by the forgiveness of our sins. That men might, and women, might be made holy. And that's what the promise is of the scriptures being preached is transformation. We didn't read it earlier, but you see in your bulletin, you see the passage out of Deuteronomy. And this is the first known reading publicly of the scriptures. And it says that Moses commanded them every seven years, verse 10, to set a time, the year of release, at the Feast of Booth. So every seven years they would celebrate the Exodus where they were slaves and now they're sons. And you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner, that means a person that's not a member of a congregation, within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear, that means respect and worship, the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, watch what happens when this is done. The stage is set here. Nehemiah is a great prophet of God who has brought his life and resources to bear upon the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And that has been laying in ruins since their exile from their sin and their idolatry. But now God's bringing them back. And they're rebuilding as a people of God. And Nehemiah, along with Ezra, goes back to Deuteronomy and he says, we're going to do it right. We're not going to be a people that simply lives with a building, but we're going to be a people who are shaped by the Word of God, by His Scriptures. And so they stood. All day they stood for the reading. And it says, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. Now that's, that's the interpretation. In other words, the, the Ezra and his helpers, the Levites, the preachers, they're not only reading, but they helped interpret. They gave the sense of it. So that the people understood the reading. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So again, it's not simply the reading, but it's giving the sense of it that causes the heart to be struck that people begin to weep. We see it in Acts. After the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, Peter is preaching. And man, was he preaching his heart out. And in Acts, it said, the people were cut to heart. The listeners were cut to heart. And if you read it, he has scripture, but he's preaching. So we have his own words for his sermon. Would that I could preach like Peter because 3,000 people were saved because they said, we're cut to heart. They began to weep. They began to cry. And he's holding before them Jesus Christ. They're being transformed even while he preaches in Nehemiah. So then what does Nehemiah say? He says, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, which if I have you over, uh, I think this is pork belly, but I'm not sure. Um, I don't know if we're going to have fat for you. But eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So in other words, in the preaching, not only are we cut to heart when we see our sin, but he says celebrate because you're feeling it. If you were dead, if you were not God's people, if you were not called to him, then preaching would just nothing. It would be foolish. It would be, as Paul says here in verse 18, it would be folly. It would be two dangerous things. It would either be just information, or it would begin to say, you know what, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. It would be not transformation that is promised, but that you begin to take joy to say, you know what, if God, like a heart surgeon, if he's in there and he's operating, he's cracking my chest open, and man, it hurts and it's painful, uh, but I'm going to get a new heart. There's joy there. He cares enough to transform me. His plan all along is to redeem me, rescue me, and restore me and heal me. But if you go the other way, then preaching just becomes moral reformation. Heard that, I need to do better there. Yeah, I need to work on uh, my community life. I need to work on communion. I need to work on compassion. Yeah, I need to work on it. Or do you hear God saying, I'm turning the light on through the scriptures, but I'm showing you that I'm at work. Well, how does he work? He works through the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul, who has been telling us that the gospel that he's called to preach in verse 17, he says in verse 17 of chapter 1, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul has been saying, look, 
here's what I do. I am a preacher. God has ordained it through Christ. Christ has said, this is what preachers are to do for my people. It's a part of my plan. But I don't preach such that it's going to measure up to the world's wisdom. In fact, it would actually be considered quite foolish, but it includes the cross of Christ, and that's where the power lies. And he says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are cast up, who are perishing. The word of the cross is a synonym or a synonym statement for the gospel, good news. The word of the cross is good news. The word of the cross speaks to us. There's a gospel that we preach, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, and we impart, in other words, we give you God's word, we read it, this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Again, a preacher would say, here is the scripture in light of all that God is doing, and let me make the sense of it so that you see what God is doing and what and why he is doing it. Not simply information what he's doing, but why is he doing that? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Let me show you, before I leave this point, uh, in just a minute, what this looks like. I have on my marker board this morning, Jill. Now, Jill is who we pray for at Two Rivers. We have Joe and we have Jill. This morning I've got Jill. Jill grows. And the elders, the shepherds, pray for Jill at Two Rivers, as well as Joe, to grow as a disciple, as a follower of God, and to grow in six ways. To grow as a learner, a worshiper, to grow as someone who is a lover of others, Someone who is a friend. I know that uh, Danny was recently talking about spiritual friendship. So that our friendships look differently. They're impacted by the gospel. They're also a neighbor. They love their neighbor. And then finally, they're a servant to others. Now, how you doing? If that's your scorecard, if that's your report card, how you doing? You got an A plus? I suspect, highly suspect, in fact, I assume that at least one of these identifiers of a disciple of Christ is weak in your life. And that's where God wants you to be transformed. How will He transform you? Let's say that you are someone that your worship is plateaued and flat. It's all you can do to get through a worship service. Every day when we talk at Two Rivers about everyday worship or a quiet time, it's long been, it's, it's been a long time since you've carved out time every day to, 
to read God's Word, to meditate, to pray, to journal. So let's say that, that worship is weak. How are you going to get there? You're going to get there by the power of the gospel that we preach. And preaching is not simply Sunday morning by me, the preacher, but the reason that we're rehearsing the gospel on Sunday morning is also that it plays out the other six days of the week where I preach to myself. And what do I preach to myself? John 14, 15. Now, if you're working on scripture memory, this is an easy one, okay? And it's one you ought to have in your uh, toolbox. John 14, 15. 14, 15. 1 plus 4 equals 5. 14, whatever works for you. But if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the motivation for this is not simply the law, just do it. I mean, God commands us to love others as he loved us. He commands us to learn to love even the difficult people, to forgive them as they've forgiven us. He tells us to love our neighbor. Many of us don't even know our neighbor. Get after it. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it by the power of the gospel. You can imagine two circles. And that first circle is the gospel of grace. I love you. I love you. I love you. You're mine forever. That's the gospel. I love you and I've forgiven you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. And as that works on my heart, it's translated in my actions of obedience. Another way to put it is on the discipleship, on my road through this life. It begins with justification. Uh Uh-oh, theology. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. That I am forensically, legally declared innocent, forgiven forever. That starts me on the road to sanctification in one very real sense this is foundational sanctification right now how does God see you he sees you through Jesus Christ as his perfect daughter perfect you don't see that shame that you don't why if I saw if I saw myself as perfect then I might go out and sin no That's why this gospel is deemed foolishness by some. You mean you just don't have to do anything and you're just forgiven? And you mean you can go out and sin again and you're just forgiven? And you mean you can go out and sin again and you'd be forgiven? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Sounds foolish. Yeah, that's crazy. You ought to be able to do something. The world, the world is amazed that God denies us life and joy. The world. The world says, God is cruel. He's holding back from me. He's not giving me life. He's not giving me joy. The Christian, the Christian is amazed that God does not give us judgment. That he holds it back. And in my amazement, my response is worship. It's obedience. That's the gospel that we preach, and that's why we preach it. Or else we will slip into a default mode 
of earning our salvation, where God's mad at me and I've got to work, I've got to do better, I've got to do better, and then some of us will despair because I just, I've tried, I just can't break this addiction, I, can't, I just can't stop this bitter attitude or this cynicism or this hate I have in my heart for this person. I can't stop, I've got to do better. Go to the gospel. Jill, go to the gospel and stay there like a car, it will begin to change because it's not changing simply your mind with new information. It's softening and changing your heart. God loved us first. Now we can love Him and we can love others. Well, lastly, we do have a cross that we preach. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Why is it a stumbling block to Jews? A cruci- the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, was so scandalous that it would not even be spoken of in polite company. It's like talking at a dinner party about someone being tortured. You know, we don't, we don't go to wine and cheese parties and say, hey, man, let me show you a video that's going viral. It's the Islamists uh, beheading. And it's, it's all in its gory detail. You wouldn't talk about it. You wouldn't revisit it. But more than that, it's a stumbling block Jews that can't get over it. It's a, it's a wall too high because not God, not the Messiah, Not God dying. No, no, no. God can't die. A Messiah, he can't be perfect and then also become my sin. How does Jesus become sin? All that stuff. But he did. But the Greeks, on the other hand, who prided themselves on wisdom, it was folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Those who God is transforming. Those who God is transforming through the gospel. Those who he is calling with this love relationship that he's redeemed us for. Both the Jews, out of the Jews and the Greeks, which is also Gentiles, that's us. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the cross to us looks like the wisest, most ingenious plan that no man could ever think of. That God, who is wrathful toward sin, will pay the price for us himself in his place. And that, through the preaching of the scripture, Paul says, is the very power of God at work in us. It changes us. It changes us. Truly, the joy that we find in that is our strength. I was talking to a good friend of mine uh, this week, and uh, as we were talking, he was talking about what I will say is spiritual exhaustion. Strong Christian, you're just tired. Just a lot of things are just really flat right now. 
And I said, kind of feels like your soul's got the flu, doesn't it? He says, yeah, 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 it does. The cross is the power of God to cure your spiritual flu, your soul flu, your spiritual exhaustion, your plateauing as a Christian. How does it do that? Martin Luther talked about something called the wonderful exchange. Sometimes it's been known as, and you'll hear me say it, as the great exchange. Martin Luther, who next year, we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation next year in some fashion at Two Rivers. But Martin Luther said this, this is the mystery of the riches of divine grace for sinners, for by a wonderful exchange, our sins are now not ours, but Christ's, and Christ's righteousness is not Christ's, but ours. When you look at the cross, when you as a worshiper, when you, listen, when you sit under the preaching of God's word, you should expect to regularly hear the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. Because it's the ministry, the preacher's call to take you back, whether you want to go or not, to take you back to the cross. Uh, you're too old, and I, I mean, you're too young, and I'm dating myself now. Uh, but there used to be a, a TV program, and the whole premise was a reporter would come on and he would take you back in time to history where this historic event is taking place. And he's like, uh, sir, uh, you're nailing a man to the cross. And I mean, it wasn't about biblical themes as much as it was historical battles and various events, but it's, he's taking you back right there. And that's part of the ministry's job, but it's also your part as your own preacher in your everyday worship, in your time, to take what you're reading and saying, where is Christ in this? Where can I find Christ? And as I find Christ, I'll play out again that wonderful mystery, that wonderful exchange on the cross where two things happen. That makes it an exchange. My debts are paid for and Christ's riches now become mine. Or put it differently. My filthy garment is taken off. I repent. I'm exposed. My guilt, my shame, I'm naked before the very cross of Christ. I should be up there. But I'm not left there. No, no. This is not a church that will leave you there. Because that's true. But by faith, by belief, believing that this book is true, by believing that this really is what happened at the cross, Christ takes my robe, gives me his pure record and robe, and he takes mine and pays a price for it. So now the power of God is not only am I forgiven, but I have every power necessary to stand in the face of sin. And I didn't have that before. To become the son or daughter that he's shaping me to be. And all that is because of the promise of the scriptures that transform us. The gospel that we preach is found in those scriptures and the cross that we hold before you.
even this morning. I remember the very last sermon that I preached in seminary. It's called the Senior Sermon. And boys, are seniors nervous about that? Because not only do you have your classmates, but you have all seniors. Not only your your smaller class, but you have all seniors and all underclassmen. They're invited to come to what was called the shed. It was an old garage. Covenant Seminary has changed since then. But it was an old garage turned into the homiletics department. And you're, you're in, you, you've got your sermon that you've been preparing for. And I still remember what I preached on. I preached on the crucifixion, the three hours of darkness that Jesus Christ was in on the cross when he was crucified. You recall that in Matthew's gospel that it records that Jesus Christ, when he gave up his spirit, that in the daytime there were three hours of darkness. And I remember giving an illustration and saying it was like God's wrath, like a a big old smoky cigar, God's wrath was being ground out in the very person of his son and that smoke, acrid smoke, was just filling up all the world. But the resurrection was where God's wrath is no more. It is now a bright new day. His wrath has been ground out. I still remember that. But most importantly, my professor, Dr. Robert Rabin, who has for many years been an evangelist, and now he is the preaching instructor, and he's in charge of all worship instruction, came to me, and he said, always keep the cross in your sermon. Always touch the cross in your sermon, because that is where the power In other words, don't just make it your senior sermon, one and done, but every sermon. You're not forcing it. See and find Jesus Christ. Three things to consider before we come to this table. Number one, listen. Listen to a sermon like it's food. Learn to find, I, this may not be the church for you, but you can find something in every message, every sermon that will feed your soul. Something is there. Approach it with an openness, a hunger that you'll famish. Number two, as you're listening to the sermon or in your own private worship, as you're reading the scriptures, the power that is there as you read, when it begins to preach to you, is not only information, it's not only what is happening here, but why is it happening. Listen to see God's redemptive plan at work in all of the scriptures. And then number three, learn to find Christ in the scriptures. Don't make it a game, but do accept the challenge that in all that you hear and you read, judge Judge the ministry of this pulpit, the sermons from this pulpit. Please, if you ever leave here and you didn't hear Christ mentioned, 
Or if you're in the church and you go and you don't hear Jesus Christ mentioned in the sermon, I believe that church is suspect. But find Christ, whether it's in Genesis or it's the Revelation. He's there. Find the one that you love. It's promised to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the cross is set before us this morning, and the gospel, the good news that it preaches on this table, bread that represents his being broken in our place, wine and that blood that not only was shed but covers us now, such that we're judged to be yours forever. Oh, Father, my soul is hungry for you. But not only feed my soul, but Father, change me, transform me, as you are committed to do by the regular preaching of your word to my heart that hungers. For your word is true, and your word is lovely, and your word is beautiful. Speak to me again of all that you've done and the good news for me, as you are our God, and we are your people, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.